Romans 1, 1 to 15, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented." in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The young man's mother was a Christian, and she was praying for him constantly, but he was living quite a wild life. But one day, he was in a garden or a courtyard, and he heard a child over the wall playing, apparently, and it seemed to be part of a game, and the child was chanting, take up and read, take up and read. And the young man noticed that there was a, a copy of the New Testament, or at least the letter to the Romans, and he just picked it up. And he opened it up at random to chapter 13, and he read a verse that pierced him to the heart. And this young man named Augustine, uh, now we call him St. Augustine, our oldest city in, in our country is named after him, St. Augustine. He was immediately converted to Christ and had, of course, a, an amazing career that affects us to this day. Years later, there was an Augustinian monk. He was following in the teachings of St. Augustine, and he was a very dedicated monk, and he was a university professor, and he began teaching in the book of Romans. And he came to a verse that we're going to look at next week, verse 17 of chapter 1. And when he understood what it was saying about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel by faith and not by works— he said it became a window of paradise, and he felt himself to be born again. Sometime later, there was a very dedicated Church of England minister, and he had gone to the colonies, the North American colonies in the late 1700s to be a missionary, and he was an utter failure, and so he went home, and one night, he says somewhat against his will, he wandered into a meeting house of the Moravians. And the Moravians happened to be reading, do you remember the Augustinian monk, Martin Luther? Well, they happened to be reading the preface of Martin Luther's commentary to the letter to the Romans. 
And this minister, this failed missionary, recounts that he felt his heart was strangely warmed and that he did, in fact, believe in Jesus and that Christ took away even his sins. His name was John Wesley. And so these are just a few famous folks, uh, St. Augustine and Martin Luther and John Wesley, who were converted, some of them already professing Christians, some of them already dedicated ministers, but they were converted by the message that they found in this letter to the Romans. Those are just three of the famous ones. But how many countless others, those already professing to be Christians and those who don't know about Christ, have been radically transformed and brought to salvation and had their lives redeemed through the message of this letter to the Romans? Now, why is that? Well, the, the reason for the power of this letter is very simple, and it's the reason for the power of all of Scripture. It's the gospel. It contains the gospel, but Romans in particular, of all Paul's letters and of all the letters of the New Testament, lays out in the most thorough and systematic way what the gospel is. And so it has a, a particular power. It's the longest of Paul's letters. But as we read it, and I hope you will read along in preparation each week, you'll say, this doesn't sound much like a letter. And it doesn't sound much like a letter, a personal letter. And the reason for that is, is because it's more like a pamphlet or a, a, a treatise. It's a, more like a little booklet in which Paul was, was putting together in a systematic way what he taught among the nations. And we hear the instructive tone of this from the very beginning. Now, you, you may recall that in, in letters of the day in, in, uh, of the, uh, the Greco-Roman world, the letter started with three elements the name of the sender, the name of the recipients, and simply a word, greetings. It could have been three words. But we find in the New Testament they followed that convention, but they amplified those different sections. And we find that Paul amplified significantly here the section on the sender himself and also on the recipients, the Christians at Rome. And then he amplified the greeting somewhat in a, in a way that became common in the New Testament. Now, first of all, and identifying himself, he could have just said Paul. That's, that's the convention of the day. Simply say Paul. But he described himself as a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, this, this may sound very familiar to you if you've read the New Testament, but it's actually quite remarkable. Because in the Old Testament, there was a, a title. It was an honorable title, Servant of the Lord. And here we find, with the greatest naturalness, that Paul and others would call themselves, instead of servant of the Lord, servant of Yahweh, they would put the name Jesus Christ instead of the Lord. And so with, with such ease, they would put Jesus Christ in place of the Lord, identifying him as the Lord. Second, he stressed his calling. He says he's called to be an apostle. Now, the word apostle comes from the verb to send. And so an apostle is a sent one what we might call today a missionary. But these were, the original apostles were more than simply missionaries. They were authoritative missionaries. They were foundational missionaries. And if you go to the first letter, uh, the first chapter of Ephesians, we find that the apostles and the prophets were foundational, not to be repeated. They were, they were unique because they had authority to establish the church and as organs of revelation. And that's what we have here, a revelation from God. And so he identifies himself, his calling to be an apostle, 
And then he says he's set apart for the gospel of God. And he says he has been set apart, he continues to be set apart for the gospel of God. And now he's introduced the theme, the gospel of God. Now, that's what he's going to develop in the whole letter, but he takes advantage of this greeting, and he's still in the greeting. And he begins to instruct, and he begins to say, what is the gospel of God? So he begins to teach from the very start. Verse 3, the gospel, no, verse 2 still. The gospel of God is not an innovation. It is not a new idea that he came up with. It is not some invention of humans. It says, it's rather, it's what was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, addressing Jewish people, he's saying, this is not something that we Christians have made up. This is something that our Old Testament, what we call Old Testament Scriptures, prophesied would take place. So this is nothing new. But the theme of the gospel is in verse 3. It's about his son. If somebody stops you on the street and says, do you believe the gospel? You say yes, and they say, what is the gospel? You can say it's a message about his son. That's what the good news is. Gospel means good news. It's about his son. And then he describes who this son is, the son of God. And he says that he is, on the one hand, according to the flesh, according to humanity, he is descended from David. That's his human lineage. But then, according to the spirit of holiness, and this is an unusual expression. Usually we find the Holy Spirit, but here this is a Hebrew expression, the spirit of holiness. It is the Holy Spirit, but it's a, it's a Hebrew expression brought into Greek and now into English. According to the spirit, he, is, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. Now, um, this is interesting because there are some who take this wrongly to say, see, at the resurrection, it says he was declared to be the Son of God in power at the resurrection. That's when he became the Son. But that's not what it says. It says it's concerning his Son, who already he was descended from David. He was, he was the Son already, and as he became part of flesh, he was descended from David. So he was already the Son of God, but he was declared to be the Son of God in a special way in the resurrection. And how is that? He was declared, and you might want to put hyphens between all these words. He was declared to be the Son of God in power. You see, when he was incarnated as a human baby, it wasn't apparent that he was powerful. He wasn't declared to be the Son of God in power at his incarnation. But when God raised him from the dead, he's declared to be what? The Son of God in power by what? The resurrection from the dead. Now, th th this is a, a fascinating couple of verses here because we have, on the one hand, we have the, the two natures of Christ. We have his human nature. We have his divine nature. But we also have his whole career, his ministry, from incarnation to resurrection. And so we have all of it contemplated, descended from David, and declared to be son of God in power according to the resurrection from the dead. And therefore, he is Jesus human. He is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, and he is our Lord, our Lord. And then Paul says in verse 5, still talking about himself, here he's still describing his, his identity as the sender of the letter, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. He's probably talking just about himself here, 
uh, probably just using the we in an editorial way, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, probably we should think of grace of apostleship, that is the gift of apostleship. And no one more than Paul understood that his apostleship was a favor. It was a grace. It was a gift. Paul recognized that, and when he writes about it, he says, no one is more surprised that I'm an apostle than I am. This was a grace to me because I was, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. That's how he describes himself. But he says this, this apostleship, this sending from Jesus is a grace, and it has a purpose in verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith, to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, the, the commentators, the scholars debate what this means, the obedience of faith, and there are a couple of ideas. One is to bring about the obedience, which is faith. How do you obey the gospel? Well, you obey the gospel by believing it. So that's one idea, that it's to bring faith to all the nations. But there's another idea, and that is that he's talking about the result of faith, to bring about not just faith that does nothing, but faith that obeys, to bring about the obedience that flows from faith. And there's something interesting if you go to the second to last verse, second to last verse of this letter, uh, verse 26 of chapter 16, he talks about the, the gospel, and he says, It has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. The same expression that appears only in these two places in Paul. The obedience of faith. And so that it bookends. He bookends this letter with this idea of obedience of faith. And if that second idea is the correct one, which I tend to think it is, the obedience that comes from faith, then it's a very handy outline of this letter. Chapters 1 to 11 are about what we must believe, faith. Chapters 12 to 16 are about the obedience that comes from faith. And when we get to the first verses of chapter 12, we will find a pivot, a hinge there, that goes from what we must believe and the mercies we receive because we believe to how we must live as Christians. So another answer to what is Romans about? You could say the gospel. You could also say the obedience of faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he then, um, having mentioned the, the nations here, oh, by the way, he also says that it's for the glory of Christ. He says, for the sake of his name, we could, we could say for the glory of his name among all the nations, the nations, the end of verse 5. And having mentioned the nations, it's also translated Gentiles. It's the same word as in verse 13 that's translated Gentiles. Nations, Gentiles, people groups, ethnic groups. He says, that's what you are. And now he, he pivots to talk about the, the recipients of the letter. He says, that's what you are. You are among the nations. You have come out from the nations. And by the way, this is one of uh, many clues in the letter to the Romans that the church in Rome was predominantly a Gentile church. Not completely, because we we're going to find later that there are some, some conflicts and some difficulties between Jews and Gentiles trying to live out their common faith together. But it looks like it was a predominantly Gentile, that is, non-Jewish church. It was from the nations. And that's what you would expect. Where is it? It's in Rome. It's not in Jerusalem. It's in, it's in Rome. And so you would expect it to be many of the nations who gathered in the capital city. And he says, you are among the nations. And he says, you too 
if you're among the nations, have a calling. He identified himself as called in verse 1. And then he says in verse 6, including you who are called of Christ Jesus to all who in Rome and who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he has a calling that's very particular to him. And they have a calling, or I should say we have a calling, if we identify ourselves as believers. We are the called of Christ Jesus. And we are also called to be saints. Verse 7 is fascinating because it says you Gentiles are called to be described with descriptions that applied to Israel. Verse 7, we have two descriptions of Israel. Loved by God. Who is Israel in the Old Testament? The beloved of God. And now that, that title that belongs to Israel is now being applying to, applied to Gentiles who believe in Jesus. And saints, holy ones, who are God's holy people, set-apart people in the Old Testament? Israel. Well, who are God's set-apart people now? All who believe in Jesus Christ from all the nations. So that's just the sender and the recipients. That's, that's, all, that's how much he's developed those, those two elements. And then we have the greeting at the end of verse 7. And it's easy for us to just go over this greeting because it, it became a typical greeting in the New Testament among New Testament writers. You're, you're familiar with this. Grace to you, you can probably repeat it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That was an innovation. That was a development. That is a, a development of the, the normal greeting. And what it includes is the source of salvation, grace, and the result of salvation, peace, shalom, peace with God and peace with each other. So these are loaded terms, source and result. And from whom do these come? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, with the most ease and naturalness, putting the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father on the same level. So that's the greeting. And then we have, as is typical in New Testament letters, all of Paul's except for one to the churches, we have a thanksgiving. A thanksgiving. And he thanks God for the Roman Christians, noting particularly that their great reputation was in the whole world, the whole world. Verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, that may be some exaggeration there. Of course, he didn't know about all the world that we know about, but the Roman world. But it may not be much of an exaggeration when you think about the Roman world because these were the capital Christians. These were the ones that lived in the capital city. So what happened there would tend to be known in the Roman world. And they had a good reputation throughout the Roman world. Now, the rest of, oh, by the way, where'd this church come from? This church in Rome. How did the church get to Rome? And the answer is, we don't know. There are some legends about Peter founding the church in Rome. And then there are other legends about Peter and Paul jointly founding the church in Rome. But these are not likely to be true, and the second one is certainly not true. And the reason we know it's not true is because Paul's writing to a letter, that he, a letter to a church that he makes clear he's never visited before. So this church predated Paul. So Paul didn't found it, and it's also very unlikely that Peter founded it, except in one sense. If you go to the 
Acts chapter 2, and there is where the Holy Spirit came, and there were visitors for the day of Pentecost from all over the Roman Empire, and if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, you will find that there were some visitors from Rome, and who preached that day? Peter preached that day, and 3,000 people came to Jesus that day. And where did those people go? Well, many of them went back home. It may be that some stayed, but many went back home. So in that sense, it could be that Peter founded the church in Rome by preaching to those visitors, and they took the gospel back and founded the church there. But what's clear in Romans is that Paul had not yet been there, He was probably in Corinth, probably in in what we would call Greece, and he was going to make one more visit to Jerusalem before he went to Rome. That was his his travel plans. Now, in the rest of this section, which I won't cover in quite as much detail, we see Paul doing a balancing act here. Because Paul was the apostle to whom? The Gentiles. And the Roman church was largely made up of whom? Gentiles. So did Paul have some authority in the church of Rome? Yes. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so we see him speaking, on the one hand, authoritatively about what he wanted to do among them. On the other hand, Paul was very respectful of churches that he had not established. And he was very respectful of the history of churches and of the founders of other churches. And so we find Paul kind of balancing here between saying, I am your apostle because I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, but I recognize that you have a separate authority. I did not found you. So let's see how he does that. In verse 9, he says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that, usually when he says asking that, he prays, for something to happen in them. But here he prays for God to make a way for him to visit them, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, it may be that some of them felt slighted. Huh, some apostle to the Gentiles, and here we are, Gentiles in the capital city, and he's never even visited us. So it may be that he's saying, no, I really, really, God is my witness. I call God as my witness that I really want to come and visit you. And I'm, I'm asking that God would make that possible. And then verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Apostle to the Gentiles. Going to impart to them a spiritual gift to strengthen them. And then in verse 12 he clarifies. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. And here we find him, it looks like, recognizing that that he was not their pastor, even though he has authority among all the nations. He says, actually, you have a faith, and I can benefit from your faith, and I have a faith, and, and you can benefit from my faith. So there's a mutuality here about this interaction that we don't find in other letters to the churches that Paul founded. The churches that Paul founded, he's authoritative, but here he's Authoritative, but he's also mutual in his respect for them. And then verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented 
in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the nations. The rest of the Gentiles, if you're, if you're among the nations, then, then you're part of my, my parish, if it were, as it were. And, and I want to reap some harvest among you as well. And then he identified his ministry, going back to his ministry, in an interesting way. Our translation says, I am under obligation. It's, uh, it's actually, I am a debtor. I am a debtor. Now, I could, I could ask you to raise your hands. How many of you are debtors? And if you have a mortgage or if you've uh, uh, financed a car or something like that, then, then you're a debtor. How did you become a debtor? Well, you became a debtor by borrowing money from someone else. And so you have to pay back the money you borrowed from someone else, and you have to pay it back with interest, right? But there's another way to become a debtor. Paul didn't borrow from anybody, but he says, I'm a debtor. Um, another way to become a debtor is this, to be an intermediary. If, if I have something and I want you to give it to someone else, it's, it's not just for you. You, you can use it for now, but, but then I want you to pass it on. Until you pass it on, you are in debt. And Paul says, I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. Why is he a debtor? He says, I'm a debtor, and here there's something shocking for these, these capital city dwellers, these sophisticated capital city dwellers. He says, I'm a debtor, both to Greeks. Now, they would have called themselves Romans, but they spoke Greek, so they were, in that sense, Greek, and to barbarians. Now, that may sound like an insult, but originally it looks like that word barbarian. Um, when you hear somebody speaking and you don't know their language, and you try to imitate it, you just make sounds. And that's what the Greek speakers did when they would hear these other nations speaking. To them, it just sounded like bar, 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 bar. And so they called them what? Barbarians. Barbarians, okay? And that that's, looks like that's where this word came from. So he's saying to Greek speakers and to non-Greek speakers, whom the Greek speakers would have despised because then barbarian began to take on the sense that, that we have, that is, that is less cultivated, less, less sophisticated. And then he says that explicitly, both to the wise and to the foolish as well. All kinds of people. Now, this, this would have been hard probably for native Romans to contemplate, particularly educated Romans to contemplate, but it, it's something that, that Paul led with here. I'm a, I'm a, a debtor to the least of humanity, the ones that are on the bottom rungs of, of the social economic ladder. I'm a debtor to them as well as to the ones at the top. I'm a debtor to everyone. Now, why is he a debtor? Because he had something that God had given him that was meant for them. And, and until he gave it to them, he was a debtor to them. He was obligated. And what was that? Well, that was the gospel. I have the gospel. It's for me, but it's not just for me. It's for all the nations, and not only all the nations, but all the levels of all the peoples in all the nations. That's quite a debt to have, isn't it? But Paul says, I have that debt, and I am anxious. I am eager to discharge that debt. So verse 15, he concludes, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Because he was a debtor to the Romans as well. And until he was able to visit Rome and preach the gospel there, he would still have that debt. And we find that he wanted to go even farther beyond that and discharge that debt to farther west of Rome. Now, it's interesting. He says he wants to preach the gospel to you 
also who are in Rome. It looks like he wants to preach the gospel to Christians, and he wants to preach the gospel to non-Christians, to you who are in Rome. And that's, that's, that's what we do here. Every week we try to preach the gospel to Christians, and if there are any non-Christians here, and we try to go out in the world and preach the gospel to non-Christians as well. Because Christians needed to hear the gospel. That's why he wrote this letter. This was written to Christians. Christians need to hear the gospel constantly. And non-Christians here that need to hear the gospel for the first time. And we're debtors uh, to, to them until we give it to them. Now, there's some aspects of Paul and Rome that are unique to them. Paul was an authoritative apostle. We're not authoritative apostles. Um, Rome was unique. It was a church in the capital city and composed in its day of, of unique aspects. And we'll find that there's some unique aspects. But there are other things that we have in common with Paul and we have in common with the church in Rome. Paul had a direct commission from Jesus to all the nations. And so he said, I'm a debtor. I have a debt to discharge. But that debt that he had to discharge was not his alone. And here's something that we have in common with Paul. If we have received the gospel, we are not the end of the road. It's not meant just for us to keep to ourselves. It is meant for us, thanks be to God, and it is meant for us to give to others. So we are debtors as well. Anyone who has believed in Christ for salvation has at the same time acquired a debt that he or she owes to the nations. It's destined for them, so we dare not keep it to ourselves. There's a, there's a story Sometimes in the Old Testament, we find stories that are illustrative of truths in the New Testament. And we find an interesting story in 2 Kings chapter 7. The, uh, the Syrians had besieged Samaria, and they were starving them to death. And so they resorted. It was so bad that the, the Samaritans were, were resorting to cannibalism. It was, it was so dire. And then... There were four men who were between the attacking Syrians and the, the Israelites who were in Samaria. They were lepers. They weren't allowed to go out the end of the city. They were exiled outside the city, and there were these four lepers out there. And so they're attacking Syrians on the outside, and these men are there outside the city, outside the walls. But they're lepers, so they have to stay away from people. And they said, they just reasoned like this. They said, well... We can't go in the city. Everybody's dying in the city. And if we go out to the Syrians and just sort of turn ourselves in, the worst they can do to us is what? Kill us. So maybe we'll be able to find something out there, find some sort of mercy. And so they go out to the Syrians. And they find, guess what? The Syrians were gone. The Syrians apparently had fallen into a panic. Doesn't explain how, but we find other times that God sent panic on the enemies of of his people. And they... They just, they, they took off and they left all their things and they, they, they left all their riches and possessions and food. And these four lepers said, wow, we've hit the jackpot here. And so they gathered up riches and they, they took them back to their tent and they hid them in their tent. And then they went out again and they, they went out for another foray. They, they went back to their tents and started guarding more of these, these riches in their tent. And they thought, this is fantastic. And then... One of them said, they said actually one to another, we are not doing right. 
And listen to how they argued. We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. This is a day of good news. And then they said, come, let us go and tell. And if you look at the Greek translation of, of the, the Old Testament, it says, this is a day of evangelion. This is a day of gospel. And so if it is the day of gospel, what did these four lepers decide they had to do? They had to go and they had to tell. Because they were debtors, in a sense, to those starving people inside the city. Now, I have to say, when I read about Paul, and I, as a poor minister of the gospel, I get very, very intimidated. I, I can't find anybody like Paul. He was amazing. So, Paul, what did you do? Oh, I evangelized Asia Minor, and now I'm looking for other places. Uh, kind of ran out of places to evangelize here. I'm just trying to go. Amazing. Amazing. And it's easy to get intimidated. And it's easy for all of us to. And you could say, I, I can't be like Paul. Guess what? You don't have to be like Paul. Paul had a unique commission directly from the Lord Jesus. All you have to be is like those lepers. Those lepers who knew that it was a day of good news. Those lepers who had received riches freely that were not theirs. Those lepers who could simply say, I know where you can find what you need for salvation. How are we going to reach people with the gospel? We've tried a number of things. We've tried things online. We've tried knocking on doors. We've tried postcard campaigns. We've tried a number of different things. But you know what, what really is the only way that people come to Jesus? It's when Christians tell them about Jesus and invite them to say, come and see. Come and hear. Come and learn about this good news. This is a day of good news. And, and maybe we don't know all we need to know or to answer all the questions that might be thrown at us, but we know this is a day of good news. And so anyone who is a believer in Christ, who is a debtor to the nations, can say, this is the day of good news. Come and see. Come and see. And have your needs satisfied as I have as well. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the start to this letter. And we thank you for the amazing, even in this greeting and thanksgiving, the amazing truths that are taught here about us being called of Christ Jesus, belonging to him and receiving the blessings that were Israel's and also receiving, along with salvation, a debt. And I pray, O oh God, that you would enable us in our various circles, to discharge that debt, that you would use us, not to be the end of the road, but rather a link in the chain, so that others might learn about this glorious salvation of Jesus, the Son of God, descended from David, declared to be the Son of God in power, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.